understand this, Christ sees every church that belongs to him. He knows the, the large, the powerful, the influential, and he knows the very small, insignificant, out of the way, nobody knows about them, churches. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part 11 in his current series, The Seven Churches of Revelation. So far in our study, we've learned how five of the churches were characterized in blessing or rebuke or sometimes both. The church in Ephesus was a church characterized by loveless fidelity, in Smyrna, faithful suffering. In Pergamum, undiscerning tolerance. In Thyatira, extra-biblical authority manifested in false teaching. And in Sardis, dead Christianity, in which most of the people in the church lacked spiritual life, with only a few that truly knew the Lord. Today, Tom begins to examine the sixth church, the one church of all the seven with full commendation and no rebuke, the church in Philadelphia, known for its enduring faithfulness. Keep all that in mind as we join Tom Pennington right now on The Word Unleashed. Well, we're considering the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So far, as we've made our way through these seven churches, we've looked at five of them. Now, let me just remind you that these were real small churches that the apostle Paul had planted and that after Paul's death, John the Apostle moved from Jerusalem to Asia Minor, to modern Turkey, where these churches were located, are located, and, and there he served these churches. And when he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos under the, the persecution under Domitian, he there received this revelation from Jesus Christ. And it begins with these letters to these seven real churches. But as I mentioned to you, not only are they seven real churches, but they are representative of the different kinds of churches that exist in every place and in every time. Every church in our area can sort of find its counterpart, every true church can find its counterpart in these seven churches or some blending of them. So let me just remind you of what we've learned so far. The, the church in Ephesus was a church characterized by loveless fidelity. In Smyrna, faithful suffering, in Pergamum, undiscerning tolerance. In Thyatira, extra-biblical authority. In Sardis, last time we saw dead Christianity, where most of the people in the church lacked spiritual life. Only a few truly knew the Lord. We come to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Let's read it together. The message to the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, 
I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The focus of this letter is that Christ praises his church for its enduring faithfulness to him and to his word. We could call the church in Philadelphia that. It's a church that's characterized by enduring faithfulness. Now, with each of the seven letters, we are following the outline that Christ himself does. So let's begin then as we consider this church by looking at the introduction to the letter, the command to write that occurs in verse 7. Look again at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Now, as we look at this introduction, as we have each time, let's begin by considering the character of this city. He says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. You remember that the apostle John gave this letter a kind of circular letter, but one that was addressed, had portions of it here addressed to each of the churches, to his messenger from the Isle of Patmos, and this messenger came to Asia Minor. And you remember that there on the coast, you can see it about halfway down on the left side of this slide is the city of Ephesus. That's where he started. The messenger started, and then he would have moved up the coast uh, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, then to Thyatira, down to Sardis. You can see now we're going south again, and then to Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia was about 30 miles southeast of Sardis. It was on a main trade route from Smyrna on the coast toward the eastern regions of Mysia, Lydia, and Pergia, or Pergia. It was also on a major Roman postal road that headed east. Because of the city's strategic placement, it was known for its commerce. It was even called the gateway to the east. The city itself was located at the eastern end of a valley alongside a tributary of the Hermas River. There's a a picture of that, and you can see the valley in the distance there. And here is a, a better view. The city was built on the Acropolis, and it wasn't a large Acropolis like some of the cities we've looked at, but it, did, it was on a rise and had a view of the valley. It was well situated both commercially and militarily, and it was in a region that was marked by volcanoes, and its volcanic soil was extremely fertile. In fact, it was an area that was perfect for growing grapes, produce for which the city was famous. This is what the city was known for. Unfortunately, those volcanoes that made this such a fertile area and so appropriate for growing grapes was also vulnerable to earthquakes because of that. Very fertile, prone, vulnerable to earthquakes. Because of its location, again, the city was expected to try to expand the Greek influence toward the east, and they were able to carry that out successfully. The Asian areas just to their east came 
under the influence of Greek culture, and eventually that area spoke only Greek. As far as its history, this was the most recently founded of the seven cities, sometime after 189 BC. It was founded by either Eumenes II of Pergamum or his younger brother, Adelus Philadelphus. And he was called that because of his love and loyalty for his brother. On several occasions, the younger brother gave up the throne to his older brother, and so he came to be known as Philadelphus. And the city was named after him and became the city of brotherly love. The earthquake that destroyed Sardis in 17 AD also destroyed the city of Philadelphia. In fact, Philadelphia was actually closer to the epicenter and aftershocks continued there for a considerable period of time. The Greek writer Strabo says that the walls of the city were constantly cracked, both because of the original major quake and the continuing pattern of aftershocks that continued in the many years after that. Many of the people of Philadelphia were so concerned about the collapse of the the major structures and cities that they actually left the city and built lean-tos outside the city in which to live, and they took up, even those who hadn't previously had this practice, took up farming because they were so concerned about living within the context of the city. Keep that in mind. That will factor back in in Christ's later comments. As far as its politics, after that great earthquake in 17 AD, the Roman emperor removed the requirement for the city to pay tribute for a period of five years so that it could recover and rebuild. And so out of gratitude for that, the city fathers renamed, for a time, they renamed Philadelphia Neo-Caesarea. In the 80s AD, the city also added a new name to Philadelphia, and that was Flavia, the name of the imperial dynasty. So the city was clearly closely aligned to Rome, but it sort of uh, had several different name changes. That too will come back to factor in later. But in, in 92 AD, the city's relationship with Rome soured. Rome was in the middle of a famine and needed grain to feed their armies, so the emperor Domitian issued an imperial edict demanding that half of the grapevines in Philadelphia be destroyed and that no new ones were to be planted. Why did he do this? Well, ostensibly it was to encourage the farmers to grow grain on those now empty fields, but of course grain was a much cheaper crop and would never produce the same revenue as the grapes. Others conjecture the emperor had a far more sinister motive, and that was to protect the vineyards in Italy from the excellent grapes that were grown in the city of Philadelphia. Regardless, this decision was disastrous for Philadelphia because it would take years for those grapevines to grow back. So its relationship with Rome soured significantly just before this letter was written. As far as its religion, this city was characterized by a blend of Anatolian and Greek gods and goddesses. As you might guess, for a city with this history, the patron deity of the city of Philadelphia was Dionysus, the god of wine. From this letter, we also know that there was a powerful Jewish community in this city as well. In fact, later in 110 AD, Ignatius went and visited the city and then he wrote a letter back to the city in which he discussed the the problems the church was facing from that very powerful, influential Jewish community that was antagonistic toward the church there. 
So that's the city. Let's consider, secondly, the history of the church. Again, he says in verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. The New Testament says nothing about the founding of this church, but undoubtedly, like the other six churches, it was founded by Paul during his stay in Ephesus in the early 50s AD when we read in Acts 19.10 that the word of the Lord went out from Ephesus to all the surrounding cities and villages. So undoubtedly, this church had been around for more than 40 years by the time this letter was written. Now, in the introduction, in addition to the city and the church, Christ begins with a description of himself. Notice what he says, verse 7. He introduces himself to this church with three descriptions. First of all, he says that he is set apart and worthy of worship. Notice verse 7, he who is holy he who is holy. He's describing himself here. Of course, in the Old Testament, God is often referred to as the Holy One again and again. In Revelation 6, verse 10, this expression is used of the Father. So here it's used of Christ, and it simply means that Christ is set apart. He is unique. There is no one like him. Christ is in a category all of his own. You know, when we think about things, we think in categories. You think of your pet and you think dog or cat. There's a, there's a category in which that, that animal fits. Even with people, we do that, right? There are categories in which people fit. There's no category for God. There's only one person in God's category. He is holy. He is unique. He's set apart. And therefore, he is worthy, and he alone is worthy of worship. That's what Christ is saying. He who is holy Secondly, Christ describes himself in this way. He is the genuine Messiah, the real Messiah who is faithful to his people. Notice that expression in verse 7, who is true. Again, in chapter 6, verse 10, this is used of God. And this word true is, is a different form of a familiar word, but it can mean one of two things. It can mean either genuine, that is real, or it can mean faithful. It's used both of those ways in other places in Revelation. And so many of the commentators suggest, and I think they're absolutely right, that that Jesus intends both of them here. He intends to say to this church, listen, I am the genuine Messiah. Even if the Jews in your community deny me, know that I am the true one and that I am faithful to all who follow me. I will vindicate my own, as will become very clear in the rest of this letter. Thirdly, Jesus describes himself in this way. He alone controls access to his kingdom. Notice verse 7 goes on to say, he who has the key of David. This is an allusion to Isaiah 22, where God demands that Eliakim replaced Shebna as the chief steward in Hezekiah's house. Listen to Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. That's Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. Now in Isaiah, in context there, the key of the house of David referred to access to the king and to his palace. And this 
man that was going to be appointed had power to open and shut, and that stressed his authority, his absolute authority over who came and who went. In Revelation 3, the same idea is present. The key here is a metaphor for Jesus' control. As the Messiah who is from David, he has the key. The key to what? The key to his kingdom. The key which gives access to his kingdom. So he goes on to say in verse 7, I am the one who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now here the concept of open and shut had special meaning to the believers in Philadelphia. I mean, think about it. They had been shut out. They had been shut out of the Jewish synagogue, those who were Jewish or who who were proselytes to Judaism before their conversion. They had been shut out of the pagan temples because they were considered to be atheists because they didn't embrace the gods of Rome and Greece. But Christ reminds these poor believers that he and he alone has the authority to open and shut the entrance to heaven. His decision will be final and unchangeable. So that's how he begins to introduce himself in this letter to the church in Philadelphia. Now that brings us then to the body of the letter in which we learn the state of the church. And that should say verses 8 through 11. Verses 8 through 11. The body of each letter begins with the same words. In every one of the seven letters, seven times Jesus says, I know I know, I know. And here he says it again in verse 8, I know your deeds. Now what's remarkable about this church is that only this church and the church in Smyrna, those are the only two churches that received no correction from Christ, only commendation. That's all this church receives. Wouldn't we love to be a church like that where Christ has only good things to say? So let's consider what his commendation is of this church. Christ's Christ's commendation of the church. Verse 8, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Now that expression in the middle there, behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, is parenthetical. So we're going to skip to I know your deeds because the way the Greek reads uh, in all of the letters is I know your deeds is introduced by this this clause that follows, because you have a little power and have kept my word and not denied my name. So here are their deeds. Here's his commendation. Christ singles out three commendable, praiseworthy traits of this church, traits that are always commendable in a church. First of all, he says, you have a little power. Now, occasionally, this line is interpreted as a kind of rebuke, but that's not the way to read this. These are commendations by Christ. No reputable commentators interpret it that way. So what is he saying? What it means is this. He's saying, listen, I'm going to commend you for a couple of things, but I want to acknowledge at the outset that you are not a large, powerful, influential church. That's what he's saying. You are, you are a small church with very little power, very little influence in your community. The truth is, as we'll see, these people were looked down on, they were persecuted, they were ostracized, they were ridiculed. But in spite of all of that, they remain faithful. Notice he goes on to say, you have kept my word. You have kept my word. Likely kept here doesn't mean guard, which it can mean, but it means obeyed. You have obeyed my word. 
This small, insignificant church had faithfully endeavored to obey Christ's word, the truth revealed in Scripture. And then he says, you have not denied my name. They had remained loyal to Christ. You remember Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. He said, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. That is, before God himself. This little body of believers, a small little church, not powerful, not influential, but they had remained faithful to Christ's word. They'd kept it, they'd obeyed it, and they'd remained loyal to him. They hadn't denied his name. Because of their faithfulness, Christ made them several promises. Before we move to the promises, though, I just want you to think about what we just saw. Understand this, Christ sees every church that belongs to him. He sees them and he knows. He knows the, the large, the powerful, the influential, and he knows the very small, insignificant, out of the way, nobody knows about them, churches. You realize most of the churches in America are like that? The median church size in America on a Sunday morning, median, meaning 50% on a Sunday morning are smaller and 50% are larger. The median church size in America is 75 people. 50% of the churches in America are small, little, insignificant churches, and Christ knows every one of them, and he has just as clear a vision of what's happening there as he does the church in Philadelphia and as he does the large, influential churches like Ephesus. So let's move on to Christ's promises to the church because of their faithfulness. First of all, he promises them admission into his kingdom. Look at verse 8. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Now, historically, there have been two primary interpretations of that expression. Perhaps you've heard the first. The first one is this, that this is an open door to missionary opportunity, that that's what this is describing, because that's how this same expression is used, not in the Apostle John's writings, but in the Apostle Paul's writing and in the book of Acts. For example, 1 Corinthians 16.9 says this, a wide door for effective service has opened to me, but there are many adversaries. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ and when a door was opened for me in the Lord. In Acts 14, 27, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now those who hold this view call this the missionary church that God, God opened the doors for evangelism and for missionary outreach. And, and they point to the fact, you remember I told you that this city was strategically located and had been assigned essentially the missionary responsibility as a city to spread the Greek culture east. They said, see, that's, that's the same thing that Christ was assigning this church spiritually, and that was to, to give them this missionary assignment with the gospel. And that's possible. But I think the second primary interpretation of this is more likely in context. It's certainly the most common view today, and it's the one that makes the most sense, and I'll show you why in a moment, and that is it's an open door to the kingdom because it fits better. This idea fits better 
with verse seven and the key of David and the opening and shutting that's referenced there in its context. So what is Jesus saying to this church? He's saying, listen, you've been shut out of everything. You've been shut out of the synagogue. You've been shut out of the pagan temples. You've been shut out of the lives of the people around you, but I'm going to put an open door. I have the keys into my kingdom and I'm gonna open the door for you. You are coming in. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 11. We hope you'll join us next time for Part 12 of his current series, The Seven Churches of Revelation. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.